And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome back, us. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we lost a couple of weeks for scheduling problems and, and, and personal problems and that sort of thing, and here we are, better than ever. Uh, my trophy. <laughs> That's a big, big call, Gary. No, better, okay, we're not. We're not better than that. ever. <laughs> we're back. Every, Hi, have you we're been? Back. That's uh, okay. Last time, two weeks ago, was was a week ago. I don't know. Uh, my fault because the Nebula Awards banquet was here in Chicago. It was an interesting weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first of two because the Nebula Awards has now decided to go to the same city two years in a row. I guess uh, for the time being. Um, on the theory that I assume on the theory that the local committee has one year to try it out and one year to get it right. Okay. But but the local committee doing the the, the um, nebulas here, which included Stephen Silver, an old friend who's been nominated many times for best fan Hugo, they did a really good job of organizing what is almost by definition an awkward weekend. It's not a convention. Uh, it's not really a business meeting, although there's an SFWA business meeting part of it. it. It's basically a banquet, an awards banquet with stuff added in the preceding two days. Yep. And the stuff was fascinating. Um, uh, I had a lovely lunch um, with Sushin Lu and Ken Lu and Joe Monte and... Um, Pretty much, uh, and, and Liz Gorinsky, uh pretty yep. much everybody who had been involved with the publication of The Three-Body Problem. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Sushin Lu was not comfortable uh, trying to communicate in English. But being a large metropolitan area like Chicago, we found some Chinese fans who just took him off in a corner during lunch and chatted with him for hours. So he had a great time, as far as I can tell. Oh, good. I'm glad. I mean, it, they must be pleased with the way that uh, the three-body problem has been received. I think, I, think, I think they're delighted with it. And I think that they're... Uh, the, the, the thing that's... Ken, Ken said this on our podcast some time ago, that Sushin Liu identifies very much with uh, the 50s and 60s masters, with Asimov, with Heinlein, with Clark, and that sort of thing. You can see that in his fiction. Um, so to some extent, I, I wasn't there when he got to meet the people that would be his kind of writers, which would have been the yep. Joe Haldemans or the, or, or the Larry Nivens uh, of, of the world. But uh, I, my, my sense was that he was delighted. Yeah. And of course, you're about to read the critical middle, middle volume of that series, The Dark Forest. And I say critical yes. because not only is it the middle book in the trilogy, always a tricky one, but it's the one volume not translated by Ken Liu. Um, I, I wonder about that. Well, again, we've talked to Ken about that. It, it, is a middle volume in a trilogy really a critical volume, or is the middle volume often a throwaway volume? That's why in some ways it's a critical volume. It's where you stop and go, why am I continuing to read this stuff? Um, I've got any number of trilogies around my, the house, Gary, that I didn't read past book one. Oh, I, I do too. Absolutely. But have you had very many trilogies where you finish book one and say... I want to know what happens, but I don't want to hear any more of this world-building stuff. So I'm just going to go to volume three. No, I've never and done that. It's a question. No, it's, it's a question. It's a question for our readers to think about. If you read volume one, how many trilogies? If you read only volume one and volume three, would you have not missed much? 
I don't know because I've never done that. I don't think I have either. <laughs> I mean, you know. the, the classic, the, okay, the archetype of trilogies, the archetype of bestseller trilogies, obviously, is Tolkien. And The Two Towers has, um, it has some stuff in it which is very interesting. It unfolds business about the world. But basically, in Volume 1, you've got the damn ring, and in Volume 3, you get rid of the damn ring. And even then, everything after the Fellowship of the Ring is a bit suspect, because well, I mean, because I mean, let's face it: you get to Return of the King, they have to have three endings. You yeah. know, the whole the whole thing could have been half the length, and you wouldn't have missed much. I, well, the thing is, when we were reading that book, uh, and I was reading that book not not when it came out. I don't think very many Americans were reading the hardcovers, but when it became a very big deal in the '60s, we didn't know about world building. Yeah, you know, uh, except for a few. Um, Oddballs who might have read uh, James Branch Cable or they might have read uh, uh, E.R. Edison. The, the whole idea of discovering this entire densely populated, linguistically rich world was something brand new. Um, and I don't think, to some extent, this is going to this is going to be in trouble with lots of people. I suppose. What well, as opposed to what we just said? As opposed to what we just said. Well, this is going to be in trouble with everybody who's a fan of most people named Terry, except for the people who are fans of Terry Pratchett. But all the other Terrys are going to be mad at me because you can't discover epic fantasy again once you've read Tolkien. You can discover variations on it. You can discover permutations. You can discover interpretations. But that notion that you can create an entire world in fiction you only get to discover once in life. As a reader? As a reader. As a reader. But what about then the, the countless readers who don't start with Tolkien? They may very well have that experience. In I've fact, talked to countless, countless epic uh, fantasy readers who don't start with Tolkien. Uh, and, and it's a, it may be a generational thing because the generation after the the generation after the generation that discovered Tolkien was probably um, the generation that discovered Stephen Donaldson. Uh, and maybe maybe Terry Goodkin. Well, I was gonna well, I was gonna say. I mean, I would think that any well, any fantasy reader who started reading fantasy after about 1980 has mm -hmm. a reasonable chance of not having started with Tolkien. I think that's true, and I think that the entry level drug uh, could very well have been Thomas Covenant. Uh, I've talked to people who I've, I've, I've had friends uh, back in the in, in in the day when people knew I was somehow involved in science fiction or fantasy and they wanted to say something helpful, uh, they would say, I've, I've, I've read all of the Thomas Covenant novels, and it turns out they never read anything else. And I've well, that's met because actually the Thomas Covenant novels are a lousy fit with epic fantasy. Uh, well, they're, they're grim and they're depressing in a way that most epic fantasy turns out not to be. Yeah. But the world is... is, 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 is a, it's a richly imagined world. It's, it's a richly imagined world by... Um, in, in a depressive sense, but nevertheless, it's pretty rich. Well, one of the topics that we always um, talk about too much is, um, you know, what influenced what, what went from, you know, one to the other to the next. And when it comes to Donaldson, I can't think of who you would list as being influenced by, who follows on from Donaldson, not just chronologically, which is how you, you know, we tend to do it. And this is also, I mean, I'm, I'm painfully aware that when I think out off the top of my head, the list of epic fantasy best-selling writers, I tend to think male names, and there are female names, we're just not naming them. Um, 
You know, because Catherine. well, I mean, well, okay, you can't turn around and say that um, Donaldson and Brooks come along in exactly the same year, right? We've talked about this before in the podcast. Yeah, exactly. exactly simultaneous. I mean, Brooks, a pastichore who's deliberately popularizing Tolkien, despite the fact that he was fairly popular to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donaldson, who's writing in an epic fantasy mode, undeniably. Uh, but this is the, the mid-1970s, so people have been writing fantasy series before that. I mean, surely surely Andre Norton was, surely uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley was, surely Anne McCaffrey was. You know, I know Anne McCaffrey would say that, you know, sort of Pern wasn't, but Pern sure sort of felt like fantasy. Um, and then, like fantasy, and they're best-selling, yeah. too, you know. So, so we, ex- we excise those from the story because they don't quite fit. You know, Glenn Cook comes along and he's basically, in a way, the Joe Haldeman of, of fantasy. Interesting analogy, but in, yeah. Without the focus on art in his fiction, which Joe has and that kind of thing. But still, when it comes to that gritty post-Vietnam experience, that's where it comes from. And that's where you get Steve Donaldson. Uh, somewhere in around here, gaming f- picks up. About 1980, between 19, around the early 1980s. Exactly the same time. The whole Steve Jackson games, the whole Dungeons and Dragons stuff, that all comes in. Yeah. And you wouldn't have and you wouldn't have Ray Feist without the gaming. Mm-hmm. You know. You wouldn't have an MAR Barker without the gaming, nor some others, you know. Because Feist's just that bit later. He comes in I think about eighty five, you know, without hoking through my, my bookshelves. You know, and then he's contemporary I mean Goodkin comes in Five or ten years after that, it's, it's, it's maybe earlier than that. I don't. Uh, know. Goodkind. I I've okay. I have never read a Goodkind novel to completion, so um, I'm not a by any means an expert, and I express no opinion about it other than to say it was around then. T- Goodkind was much mm. more contempor- contemporaneous with Jordan, who was also in 1990s. So you know, right? Okay. And, and my point is that there are, in, in all of these cases, in every author we can think of, there's a segment of the readership that basically doesn't follow into other kinds of fantasy. Yeah. There are Robert Jordan readers, there are Wheel of Time readers who have no interest in reading anything other than Wheel of Time. Sure. There were Thomas Covenant readers, uh, the, the people I talked about, who have no interest in anything else. And I'm sure there are Tolkien readers who did not follow in, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings into other fantasy novels. So... There's something that goes on in my argument from a few minutes ago in that first discovery. Whatever um, is is your entry point, is your entry-level drug into fantasy, in some cases becomes all you need. In some cases makes you think there must be other variations on this, other more interesting ways of doing this. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are young Joe Abercrombie readers who've never read anything but Joe Abercrombie. Wouldn't particularly surprise me a great deal, no. Um, and same with, say, Stephen Erickson. Yeah, exactly. Who actually, you have, you know. Reading all of Stephen Erickson, you haven't got time to read anything. <laughs> that, that was an unfair joke that I also was going to make, so you beat me to I know, boom, boom. It, but Steve knows he writes long. Now, we've actually looked a subject bang in the eye and uh-huh. gone completely at right, right angles to it. Yeah, we started with the nebulous, and how did we get off onto this? Be- because... Uh, rather than talking about the evolution of epic fantasy again, uh, which somebody somewhere someday should actually write a book about because it would be interesting to read. Um, we were talking about Nebulous and then about the structure of trilogies and the burden that sits on the Dark Forest, the, the middle book from Sishin Lu, to be successful. Mm-hmm. 
which and not in case, anything it's translated by a different translator. Yes, and that which almost makes it written by a different person. Um, I have I, I won't know that until I start. You've read it. Does it? Does no, it feel? No, I've not read that one. Oh, you've not read. I've it. got it, but I haven't read it yet. Um, because I we should we should mention uh, at least to give the person credit because I don't even. Uh, Joel Martinson is the translator of the middle volume, mm. and um, I, I don't know anything about him at all, but I know we were all impressed by the first volume, in part because Ken Liu is an extraordinarily graceful writer on his own, and uh, because he, as he described on our podcast, is very sensitive to trying, fi- trying to find English equivalents of effects that are essentially Chinese. Yeah. Narrative effect. Just, I don't know whether Joel Martinson does that or not, but by and large, just as a footnote to this, because I've been thinking about it in other terms, um, going off to this uh, archipelago in a couple of days, translations of science fiction and fantasy, even though there still are not nearly enough, are much higher quality than they used to be. Yes, well, I think that's probably true. I mean, I don't know enough to be sure, but that sounds plausible to me. I was going to say that it's an interesting thing that in the same year we've got two like events happening not like books but like like events we mm-hmm. have a new translator coming to the work of Xixin Lu doing The Dark Forest and a little bit later in the year there's a new book uh, coming out from Angelica Garodisha from Small Beer Press and the first of uh, her books that came out from Small Beer uh, Kalpa Imperial was translated by Le Guin Ursula K. Le Guin and this new book has not been so that will be a significant difference I, I, I think there will be a significant difference, and I think there's, uh, and, and to some extent, uh, I, I, there are not very many um, writers that I've read more than one translation of. Uh, uh, Borges, is, well, Jorge Luis Borges is, has been translated in three, and, and, and the later translations by Norman Thomas de Giovanni were kind of overseen by Borges himself, I gather, because Borges spoke perfect English. Um, so, does having a celebrity translator, which essentially is what happened with the three-body problem and what happened with Kalpa Imperial, increase the chances of that book being read by American readers who are notorious for not reading non-English language books? I suspect not really. Not even the Le Guin? A little bit, maybe, but not a lot. Um, because at the end of the day, think- it's not a Le Guin book. It's not a Le Guin book, but there are people who think anything that Ursula writes uh, or has a hand in is, is worth looking at. But you're right, that's, that's the devoted following. Yeah. Uh, we could ask Kelly and Gavin if that made any difference in the sales of Kalpa Imperial. I don't know if it did. I doubt if it did, really. And I doubt if Ken Liu's name made that much difference um, in the uh, three-body problem because it's a, it's a fairly lengthy, challenging book with some dense ideas in it. Yes, true, true. Uh, I am going to pull you back on topic again, Gary. I mean, because it seems like it's worth doing. The nebulas were presented. You went there. Nick yeah. Heffron was there a little bit out of place oh. and not being particularly brilliant. I watched it on the um, on, on the video, on the internet. Uh-huh. Um, some of my favorite works of the year were nominated. Uh, bunches of worthy works won, and none of my favorites did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, since I, I actually consider it a metric of success, if if my fa- my first choice doesn't win, and I think the, what did win was worthy, I think then that's that's a, a good metric of a successful outcome. 
that was the point I wanted to make uh, during my brief moment on stage, was that it was a good list. It was a list that contained, uh, and I do not have it in front of me, as you do at the moment, it was a list that contained no embarrassments. That, when that's true, I mean, for novel, which was the one that you were, you were asked I to present, novel, yes. uh, was the, the Vandimer novel Annihilation, which won, and I doubt that he's listening, but if you are, uh, Jeff, our very, very sincerest congratulations. Uh, Anne Leckie for Ancillary Sword, Jack McDevitt for Coming Home, Catherine Addison for The Goblin Emperor, Sishin uh, Lu for The Three-Body Problem, and Charles Gannon for Trial by Fire. And I've got to say, of those two or three, like three of them were amongst my favorite novels of the year. You mm. know? So... I don't, I don't know Trial by Fire, so that's the one that I was fairly ignorant of. Oh, I think you could go and look up Ian Mon's very perceptive review of it, if you'd ah. like to, if you're interested as he reads his way through the awards uh, lists. Um, I, Nancy Chris... You, sorry? You, 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 you've already done the year's best for the this year of Nebula nominees. So how does the list of short fiction nominees compare with your own assessment of the year, as reflected okay. in your own year's best? I think across the board it is strong. It omits mm-hmm. one or two of my favorites, and it does not recognize... My very favorites. So, for example, oh, okay. in Best Short Story, a, a, a very strong story by Ursula Vernon from Apex One, but I overwhelmingly uh-huh. would have given it to Usman Malik's The Vaporization Enthalpy of a Peculiar Pakistani Family. And I would uh-huh. have done it because I think it's the kind of smart, coherent, modern science fiction that we really need. It's timely, and it's biting, and it's interesting, and it's really, really a crunchy, crunchy story. There were others on the ballot that I liked, and there are other stories that didn't make the ballot in that category, but that would have been my pick. But I can see why. The, you know, I'm, I'm sure the, you know, I, mean, I know the Vernon's a good story. Um, Aliyah Dawn Johnson won for n- Novelette, as you may recall, for A Guide mm-hmm. to the Fruits of Hawaii from FNSF. Uh, I have to say, it's nice to see a story from FNSF winning a major award these days. It tends to get a bit overlooked. Um, again, not my first pick, but it would, probably would have been my second pick. My first pick would, would have been the Kaya Shante Wilson story, The Devil in Africa, from Tor.com. Ah. And I, mean, I, I don't know if you've read it. Uh, it's actually, I've this not. is my year's best. So, um, if you've read my best of the year, Gary, then you've read it. Then I did read it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, I don't know how you do what you do. I just, I, I, I'm confused. I just finished reading Guardian Dozois' best of the year, and the, which adds... Yeah. As, as, as we've pointed out many times, is only science fiction. It's not combining science fiction with, with fantasy and other things. And even there, I'm confused by the number of new writers. Oh, uh, sure. And sure. enthusiastic. I'm, I'm really yeah, thrilled yes. seeing writers whose names and, I've never yeah, seen. Six of the, well, five of the six novella nominees would have made my list if I was gathering up no, uh, uh-huh. novellas. So and I think the Cress one is very strong, but I did love Mary Ricketts, The Mothers of Orhisville, so, you know. Mm. Personal t- taste. I, I, I think you know a, a good year, um, and it'll be very interesting to compare it with late August when that happens. Um, it's it's interesting, but it's um, to be frankly uh, comparatively uncontaminated ballot with what happens in late August. Well, I mean, uh, okay. Well, first of all, the the, the novel category for the, the Hugo's, which is what we're alluding to yeah. when we refer to August. Contains three very very strong nominees, yes. and right. I think three of them are on the no- Nebula ballot. Yes, 
And so what's going to be fascinating, actually, as everyone keeps saying, is to see the, if you like, non-puppy ballot that's hidden in the statistics that'll come out after the ceremony. And I dare say the non-puppy ballot will be circulated in seconds, as everybody will want oh, to see it. Absolutely. Uh, but th- in that category alone, I think it's quite interesting. You know, I don't expect that. I honestly, I don't really expect there to be a fiction. I expect the novel to be the only fiction award presented. You think Nor Award will win in all the short fiction categories? I think there's a decent chance. Yeah, I think it'll win in some of those categories, um, despite vicious threats which have been made about. Oh, that. those guys well, are worth paying attention to, Gary. Uh, I was, I, I'm sure she wouldn't mind my saying this, but I was talking to Connie Willis during the Nebula Awards weekend, and she's worried about about retribution. She's worried about the fact that you're dealing with somebody who behaves more or less like a literary terrorist. Look, uh, first of all, I mean, I haven't invested my time in reading all of the rules change proposals that are out there, but they're out there. Have- Stuff will be done. It might take a year, it might take two, it might take three. Mm-hmm. They will do stuff to nail this down, and it'll go away, because it's a. At the end of the day, it's a bunch of really unimportant people with a really unimportant issue. That's pretty much what I was uh, trying to trying to say, and I think that's that's the only possible response to this. It's yeah. um, it's a nuisance. Uh, it's 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 annoying, but I don't want to I don't want to dignify the campaign with any stronger verb than annoying. No, I mean, you've got some costumed fool, basically, who's running around saying, you know, people aren't reading this, and if, if we boycott that, that will show them. And Don't empower these people by uh, giving them the weight of your regard, you know. Um, it, it, it will blow over. I mean, uh, just this last week, there was supposed to be a boycott on tour, sale of tour books, right? Uh-huh. And people were calling for, you know, there's there a corresponding call to go out and support tour by buying... Tour books now. Exactly. Now, full disclosure here, right? Um, podcast is resyndicated on tour.com. Uh, I do um, I do some editorial work for tour, so absolutely, I, I have a compromised view, and you can disregard me as being part of the problem. But you know, as I said online, you know, the week before the boycott, I ha- I went online and I bought three or four tour books because I needed copies of them. Uh-huh. And the week of the, bo- the boycott, I went online, I bought another book because I needed a tour book just by chance. And I looked back through our forthcoming books recommendations that we did a couple, a couple episodes back. And we recommended a whole pile of tour books right through till next April or May, you know. And end of the day, I'm really not worried about tour.com or tour, mm-hmm. you know. Um, no, is, I, and nor am I worried about the, you know, the individual writers or anything else. This is just nasty stuff, and you know you're seeing nasty stuff said. I'm seeing good people waste so much time on this. You know, there are some really. I've had the same reaction. I mean, there's some really well thought out essays, uh, some by people who I normally uh, wouldn't even be reading. I mean, I was one of the panel discussions I was on um, at the Nebula Awards banquet was. Um, Included it was me and Aliette Bodard and Eric Flint on novelists writing short stories, which is one of these things that happens at conventions because Eric Flint never writes short stories at all unless it's for a shared world anthology, and and he's a writer who is sometimes apparently championed by the right wing, who's more massively offended. He's written. I said to this, he's written really well thought out, well balanced essays. 
uh, about this issue, and I, and at the same time, I was saying, why would you take the time to do that? Why, you know, the, the, the amount of thoughtful discussion of science fiction and its ideological biases that's happened on this is probably, in one sense, more useful and more uh, thoughtful, and in some cases, more brilliant than we've seen for years. And if that if that's what's happening, if that could be a possible beneficial effect of this whole debate, people Maybe. are I mean, actually but, but, but I look, I look at Aaron Flint devoting thousands of words to it. I look at George Martin devoting thousands of words to it. I look at David Gerald talking about it constantly on Facebook. Yeah. Now I understand well, why it confronts him. He's going to have to present the awards. He's going to have or, to. He's going to be in charge. Yeah. Um. But you know, is it really that big a deal? In the long run, it's not. I mean, in the long run, you're not talking about writers who are ever going to become successful, no matter how much they try to boycott people they don't believe in. Uh, when, I, when I started thinking about the boycott of Tor, uh, and there, there was, let's parenthetically admit and then not go into too much, a rather embarrassing response by Tom Doherty himself, which probably I don't think should have been made. But then I started thinking about, what does Tor publish? And Tor publishes a huge amount of stuff that I don't want to read. Mm-hmm. And I really want them to go on publishing stuff I don't like, because if they publish stuff I don't like, that means I can still get the stuff I do like. And I won't mention the Tor books that I have no interest in at all, but, but there's a part of me that, uh, and this includes conversations I've had with Tor editors and with Tom himself, as, as long as Tor is going to be publishing um, you know, Gene Wolfe, or uh, any number of people we could name. I didn't need to start going down a list. Then they can publish books that offend me. Uh, and I, the, the idea of if somebody is publishing or if editors working for a publishing company have attitudes that you don't agree with, um, I, I, I don't see anybody taking that seriously for any amount of time at all. It's a non. I mean, it should be a non-story. I understand that you know, sort of, there was a shock at the time when the ballot came out. I understand feeling disappointed on behalf of people who might otherwise have made the ballot. Um, and honestly, for a particularly small, small subgroup of the group who have orchestrated this, some contempt for them. I think a lot of people are just along uh, to the side. There's one or two individuals who seem to be genuinely contemptible, but only one or two. One or two that are there. There are people that are um, intolerant, but there are only one or two flat-out bigots. I think, in every sense of the word. I will say, do you know what this this whole thing made me think of? I was thinking about it yesterday. It made me think about Stephen Sondheim and Into the Woods. Really? Yes, and you might say, well, why on earth, Jonathan? It's because there's a lyric. Because there's a lyric that resonated for me, Gary. Because I realized that for some of these individuals, and particularly some of these quite people, these these people who hold quite unpleasant points of view, I've met one or two of them. I've spent time with with them. I have met at least and one of them. They seem very nice. And you know what? I can think of a couple that I've, I've thought were yeah, they seem nice people. Uh-huh. And you know what? The lyric that resonated for me is that nice is different than good. That's a good lyric. And although I didn't see the play, I saw the movie, and I don't recall where it comes from, but I've found this many times, and it gets us, in, it gets us into this awkward position of yeah. writers that you get along with fine, or at some point have gotten along with very well at a convention, in a hotel room, at a lunch or something, 
and and and, and you avoid talking about certain things, mm-hmm. uh, and you find out that I'm glad we didn't talk about those things because is isn't there a kind of tightrope walking thing of of getting through this? Well, there is, but I mean, this is like they might might be giants. My racist friend. I mean, uh, what should you do if, if they have loathsome points of view and you talked about it? You'd find them loathsome, aren't they loathsome? Well, but, but here, here, here's a disagreement that I have with some good friends of mine who are also in the field. Do you bring up and confront those points of view when they're not bringing them up? Um, I don't know. I, no. I mean, there, there's an element of good manners, maybe, but yeah. I, I would say there. Are, if it came up, you would call, hopefully call them out on it. And all, I mean, here's the thing, though, as well. If you've got somebody who's... Well, think, would you continue to read someone who had views that you thought were reprehensible and you know, supporting them financially? Um, mm. Would you... I mean, like, Do you get to the point where you go, that's it, that's too much, I am cutting you off from my world, I can't stop you doing what you're doing... But I will, I, will talk, I will talk against what you're saying. I will not support you financially by buying your books, whatever else. I've thought about that occasionally. And one of the things that I have thought about is boycotting. If I'm boycotting somebody's books, well, apart from the fact of being a reviewer, I usually don't buy books. But let's say I do buy books. And let's say I, not, I decide not to buy any more books by just to pull a name out of the air, John Wright. That would make no difference in his career whatsoever. I, if, 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 it, it simply isn't... Boycotts simply, by and large, don't work. And personal okay. one or two or 20-person boycotts don't work at all. That's partly true, Gary. My point here is, you could turn around and say, you know, if you do not buy the next book by John Wright, it will make no difference to his career, because the one copy that you don't buy really doesn't make any difference. You know, that, that, that's wastage in a bookstore by accident almost. And that's true. On the other hand, you didn't support him. As a personal statement, from my own point of view, it may be important to say to myself I didn't support him. Yeah. To believe that this has any larger effect in the real world is a little bit delusional. And yeah. it's a little bit delusional in the sense that this alleged boycott of Torah is a little bit delusional. Well, the, 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 the slight difference, though, is that you're not going around calling for a boycott on everybody in the world buying the books of, by John Wright. You're saying you won't buy them. I'm saying I won't buy them, despite the fact that I've read some good science fiction by this uh, particular writer in the past. Yeah. Um, the, point, the problem with boycotting, the problem with the current Torah boycott, or the past Torah boycott, or the Tory boycott, which lasted for 90 minutes or however long it was, the sense I got is that most of the people boycotting Tor probably didn't read very many books in the first place. And many of them may never have heard of Tor until they were told to boycott it. That may or may not be true, but also, you know, it was a 24-hour boycott, right? That was what mm-hmm. was called for, for one day, buy no Tor books, just to show them. Yeah, Well, right. How statistically probable was it that the that buying group were going to be buying books on that day anyway? Exactly. And, are, and are they just uh, going to buy them that. tomorrow? Mm-hmm. In which case, Torah going, eh, I wouldn't even notice because my figures come in at the end of the month. I would think that anyone familiar with uh, with sales reporting, with statistics, with uh, with the flowcharts, and which the people that are are very sophisticated about, would have thought exactly that. They would have thought. This makes no difference whatsoever. Um, it's it's a, it's a symbolic gesture, but by and large, uh, 
it's not a lot different from people who want to ban books from school libraries. It's not a lot different from people who want to get rid of Judy Bloom novels or, or Huckleberry Finn. Uh, they, they get a lot of attention and in the end have no effect whatsoever. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, this sort of goes around like a storm in a teacup. And even this conversation is kind of going around in circles because there's no way out. It's like we're going to get to August. The Hugos will be presented as they are. Um, and then, you know, the business meeting will thrash around and do whatever it does or doesn't do. And then they'll be huffing and puffing and there'll be sad puppies for. And we'll see where we are next year. Well, that's the thing that I came away from the Nebula Awards weekend feeling is that um, there, were, there was some concern. There was a lot of talk about this sort of thing. There were a couple of comments made from the podium during the banquet. But the general sense of the weekend was that science fiction is fine. The community is fine. It's going on as it always has. Uh, the Nebula Awards, as you just pointed out, um, basically recognized a lot of worthwhile nominees. Everybody was disappointed at some results. Everybody was happy at some results. Um, and from this point of view, from that weekend, it's like science fiction has really been, as a whole, unaffected by this whole I think it's little. actually, I mean, as much as it angered me originally, as much as it frustrated me originally, Gary, I think it's supremely unimportant. And, you know, what made me angry about the post-Nebula fracas to do with Tor uh-huh. and uh, Irene Gallo, their art director and associate publisher for Tor.com, was that it was a deliberate, callous move to suck the wind out of the attention paid to the Nebula nominees. I think it was because Nancy Cress and Elia Dawn Johnson and Ursula Vernon and Jeff Vandermeer deserve celebration. You know, they've created wonderful work that's been recommend, you know, re- you know, been recognized by their peers. Um, that's what you want to be applauding. Larry Niven deserves applause after a long and storied career becoming a CIFWA grandmaster, even though it should have been C.J. Cherry uh, who got it. Um, and well, so on and so forth. Addition to Larry Niven, it's hard to argue against Larry Niven in this case. I would never. No, I'm I think not. the point. The I'm point not about Larry. the point about what seemed to be wonderful about the Nebula Awards weekend uh, was that you had. You're right. Usman Malik did not win, but he accepted the award for Jeff Vandermeer. Yes, there was a sense he was there that Susan Liu was there, but didn't win. Uh, Alea Don Johnson did win. In other words, the diversity that these people condemn was was flagrantly in evidence but at the same time that that diversity was in evidence the community was honoring Larry Niven who is let's face it one of the classic old white guys sure. left in science fiction and, and also I mean at a time when we're told that um, depending who you listen to science fiction is under assault by one thing or another let's look at what was nominated for the Nebula Award this year just out of curiosity two classic uh-huh. space operas basically or is it three? Three classic space operas between the the Lecky, the the McDevitt, and the Gannon. I mean, they're really a spectrum of them, but a really interesting spectrum. A really uh, almost fairy tale like fantasy in the Catherine Addison uh, slash Sarah Mm. Manette, which is a terrific book, my second favorite for you guys. A hardcore Arthur C. Clarke-ish hard SF book, and some crazy riff off what sounds like, you know, um, J.G. Ballard by Vandermeer, right? Well, and the, the Vandermeer, the, the thing that is, is peculiar about the Vandermeer, not that he wasn't deserving to get his fr- the first award in his career, apparently, is only that it uh, essentially was a third of a novel. Essentially was a third of a narrative. Well, that, this is the, the 
Eric Flint proposal for the change to award structures for the Hugos, right. which is a separate right. thing. Uh, you're right. Well, but you see, you say that. I mean, Ancillary Sword is the middle book of a trilogy, right? So I think Trial oh, by Fire might be part of a series as well, but I'm not sure. Three Body Problems, the opening book in a series. Eh, series happens. But, you know, it, it shows core science fiction, core fantasy, uh, experimental variation in the field. It, it looks like a really healthy ballot. Even if there were, even if you and I, if we were, if we were picking the six, we would pick a slightly different six, maybe. But this is what got picked, and it's, it's a good list. Of all the ones I've read on the list, I don't object to anything. I don't think anything is there for any other reason other than a number of people feeling it's deserving. And that's, that's essentially the sense of the weekend, uh, the sense of the weekend. There was a sense, frankly, and I talked to a number of people about this, that the Nebula Awards may have a higher profile than usual this year because of the problems with the Hugo Awards. Sure. Uh, and, and, and that's to be expected, and the same thing is probably true of the Locust Awards. But by and large, there wasn't any sense of panic. There wasn't any sense, oh, my God, the field is under siege. We're about to be swallowed by um, the, the Tea Party. There was no sense of, 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 of disturbance at all among the various people I talked to over the four or five days of that, uh, of that, that weekend. Yes. Yes. Once you get over the surprise and the shock, I guess, of the whole thing, uh, of, of the whole assault on the Hugos, it all becomes trivial. Now, moving through the nebulous, and we've got, I believe, in fact, we're here at the, it's late June, I think the next episode of our podcast will be a long discussion with Stan Robinson about his forthcoming novel, uh, Aurora, I think we might pop that one up next. Uh, We are about four weeks out from getting the World Fantasy Ballot, I would think, Gary. Yes. Four or five weeks. So, you're off to Sweden? I'm off to I'm off to Archipelagon, which is the Nordic Science Fiction Convention, which is technically in Finland, although I gather it's a semi-autonomous region of Finland called the Oland Archipelago, which is apparently in the Gulf of Bothnia, halfway between Sweden and Finland. And just as a as, as a piece of trivia, because I'm always impressed at how much writers know. A few weeks ago, I was mentioning this to. Our friend Cecilia Holland, who has a novel coming out this fall, which we will want to talk to her about, called Dragonheart. Cecilia was the only person I mentioned to when I said the um, the Oland Archipelago, and she said, "Oh yeah, that's right in the Gulf of Bothnia, there, isn't it?" <laughs> I've never heard of this place before, and she knows exactly where it is and when it was settled and built what house. Um, but hang on, but if, if, if this is like so, this is basically Finland, though, not right? Is that what it is? It's basically Finland. Legally, we're going to Finland. Um, the other guests are Johanna Sinasalo, who I really have, would love to meet, and Georgia R. Martin, um, and um, and Paris. So, uh, and, and, and a lot of people are coming over from the UK, which looks exciting to me. Um, Farrah Mendelssohn will be there. Neil Harrison will be there. Um, I'm not sure everybody, but it's it, it's it strikes me as being a very uh, civilized and very interesting convention and I get to give the plenary address on a week from the day we're recording this. In and, and, and what are you going to be giving the address on? Ah, I can give people a preview of the address. Uh, I'm talking about the idea of the impossible. And I'm talking about the classic definition of the impossible versus the possible as being the distinction which almost every critic and literary theorist has made between science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. 
I, I went back and looked at a bunch of uh, critical books about fantasy, and almost every one of them, virtually, I think everyone, uh, if not using the word impossible, described fantasy as being what is not possible according to our current understanding of um, laws. There's a fine book, uh, a recent book by Stefan Ekman, who is a Swedish scholar called Here Be Dragons, about maps in fantasy. And he confirmed that current scholars still say fantasy is that which cannot happen. So, so does that echo, does your speech echo with what I now look at as being Stan Robinson declaring in 2015 that space opera is now epic fantasy? It doesn't quite get to that point. Um, although it does get to the issue of some, some, some fantasy ideas which science fiction has reclaimed for itself. Um, or which has claimed almost illicitly, and the space opera is part of that, faster-than-light travel is something which science fiction writers have known for nearly a century now. is not going to happen. Uh, so Stan Robinson's critique of FTL is implicit in his critique of um, the Generation Starship. Mm-hmm. Time travel is now a convention in science fiction. But time travel didn't start in science fiction. Time travel started with uh, stories... Like Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where a ghost takes you into the past and the future. Yeah. Uh, there was a famous uh, Danish uh, uh, writer who, a, a fairy comes and takes him into the 27th century. Or, uh, or, or in a utopian novel, you fall asleep and you wake up several centuries later. Uh, or in Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee, you get hit over the head with a crowbar and you wake up in Arthurian England. It was clearly a convention of fantasy until Wells came along with a yeah. time machine. And what Wells did was what science fiction has been doing ever since. It's been looking at fantasy and saying, I want that. Yeah. I want to be able to do that. Yes. I mean, I was just thinking sort of in parallel. I mean, you know, can we look back to something like Star Wars as being a precursor of the admission that um, space opera is basically fantasy set, you know, epic fantasy set in space? I'm so glad that you said that because the, the opening, I, I, I hope. Not too many people listen to this before I give this talk a week from now. But I'm starting with a question which we've all faced, and I face it with my family members, with colleagues at my university, with people who are literary people but not science fiction people. When you, you disclose, your, disclose your interest in science fiction and people respond to you by saying, I love the Harry Potter movies. And then you have to think, um, well, no, that's... That's really fantasy. That's, that's not what science fiction is. And then you explain, well, science fiction has spaceships and robots and things like that. And say, oh, okay, I really like the Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. And then that gets you into, okay, um, well, okay, there's the force in Star Wars, but that's somehow different from casting a spell in a Harry Potter movie. And then they say, well, exactly how is it different? And what do you do? <laughs> You, well, you, you don't. I mean, well, look, th- this is the 50th anniversary of uh, June this year, right? Really? Excellent, yeah. Yeah, as, you, as you'd be aware. And how is it not a fantasy novel? It, I, th- I think a lot of the people who read it read it as a fantasy novel. There's a lot of stuff in the appendices about ecology, about doing ecology, about um, water conservation and that sort of thing. All of which is, because I recently... I didn't reread the whole trilogy, which is all I really ever read in the first place. There's a lot of science fiction material in Dune. 
I'm guessing that nine out of ten readers pretty much skim over the ecology bits and get to the um, intergalactic warfare bit. Uh, yes. The, the competing House Harkonnen and House Atreides and so forth and so on. So I think you're absolutely right. I think most readers today probably read Dune as epic fantasy. Sure. It's Game of Thrones with, with, with deserts. Yeah, exactly. Well, there, 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 you know, there's, there's a subculture of people out there who insist that Game of Thrones is really far future science fiction. Really? Really? Based, <laughs> there's been a tweet. It's kind of strange, and I, I, I know George is at best bemused by this, but based on the opening shots of the TV series, <laughs> in which appears to be a camera zooming over a concave map, which implies that, aha, this is either Ringworld or a Dyson Sphere, and this whole thing is taking place in some distant far future. And the, 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 the explanation of this has nothing to do with anything other than camera work. It's, it's simple. But mm. nevertheless, you subculture saying, okay, Game of Thrones is a Dyson Sphere. And you have to admire that kind of thinking because they're writing their own kind of fan fiction while they're watching the show. Well, look, whatever. M- more power them, Gary. I guess if it makes the little little chappies happy, that's fine. But that's like, no, it's fantasy, Gary. It's, it's, of course it's fantasy. It's, it's, it's conceived that way. But the point is, people can read for one thing or the other. And the idea of the impossible, the, the, to get back to the point of my lecture, which I'm completely giving away to anybody who's listening, is that that distinction, which has always been a crucial distinction between science fiction and fantasy, goes back to Chip Delaney, it goes back to everybody you want to talk about, doesn't work anymore. Writers are perfectly happy to have impossible and possible events happening in the same narrative. And that's not, it's not a blending of genres. It's really, I think, an ignoring of genres in order to tell a particular story that you want to take, uh, mm-hmm. to tell. Yeah. And you, the, the, you, one of the things, uh, again, looking at Gardner's uh, Year's Best, one of the advantages that you have yeah, Rich Horton, for that matter, is that there are these stories which are both fantasy and science fiction, and there are lots of them these days. And that is they very, don't very seem true. To bother, and they don't seem to bother the readers much. Yeah, I, I will be very interested to hear how the uh, the speech goes down once it's been delivered. Uh, as will I, obviously. <laughs> See, I mean, I've already what I've been doing is I've been reading things that I can't talk about until later in the year on the podcast. So we shall wait to sort of get to that point in the year when we can talk about those things that we can't talk about just yet. Um, Which sounds sort of very circular and unhelpful to our dear listeners, but, you know, we will. And I know, I feel like I'm I'm now filling until the next thing occurs to me to talk about. Uh, Hopefully you'll get to talk to Johannes Sinasalo. I hope we'll be able to do that. I hope we'll maybe be able to talk to George. But here's my question, because you're currently, even though we're in the middle of 2015, you have to worry about the best fiction of 2015 for a 2016 volume. I hate you for bringing that up, Gary. <laughs> uh, I am bringing it up for a very particular reason. Um, yeah. Which is, you've been doing this for how many years now? I put out my first year's best in 1996. And that's when you were still working with Karen Haber. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I didn't start working until Karen Haber until 2002, or 2003, oh, okay. 2003. So with Ka- uh, the first book with Ka- Karen Haber covered 2003. So basically, we're, t- we're talking about 12 years, going on 13 years in this field. 
of doing an anthology that includes both fantasy and science fiction. And I guess my question is going to be this, because it's not a question that Gardner has to deal with since he's only dealing with science fiction. Do you sense during the period you've been doing this that science fiction and fantasy are becoming more interchangeable? No. That you don't have to... No? No. I think it's the great fiction of the era. The great the, the story we tell ourselves is that we are more open-minded, more inclusive, and that we're out there crossing genre boundaries like bandits, right? Now, uh-huh. I think in many ways we are open-minded, we are more inclusive. But I think we've always blurred and muddied and messed around with genres, and particularly since probably the mid-60s onwards, you know, uh, ever since, since they started taking drugs or something, I don't know, uh, there's the boundaries between science fiction and fantasy have become ever more fluid. Um, but they were, you know, they were, you know, thus it has always been. I don't think it's particularly more so. Um, I think, I actually think that the interesting thing out there is in short fiction length is we may begin, I think, we may begin to see a greater clarification of science fiction at short fiction, you know, core science fiction appearing at shorter lengths, uh, and a greater demand for it. Uh, and a greater demand for a uh, continuing demand for genre blending stuff, and an uh-huh. a mar- an ever marginalized de- you know, demand for fantasy short fiction. Uh, marginalized? Why? Uh, I guess in this instance, by marginalized, what I mean is a reduced demand for. And I think the really? ongoing, yeah, I th- yes, absolutely, overwhelmingly, and I think the the. Uh, reason for it remains that fantasy short fiction for the most part doesn't read like fantasy long fiction and there isn't the same requirement for it weird fiction kind of works out horror kind of works out science fiction works out Uh fantasy doesn't and yes there are odd exceptions I mean uh, if you added an anthology of Cthulhu stories you're probably going to do fine if you put put out a bunch of fairy stories you're probably not going to do fine it's interesting because I, I, I noticed this business of genre mixing not with um, fantasy and science fiction anthologies, but going back to the, the, to the 80s at least, in the 90s, uh, it struck me as being an interesting question when the uh, Ellen Dadlow and Terry Windling fantasy and horror anthologies were being really kind of assembled. Um, and there's always this area in between. There was this area where both Terry and Ellen would choose something, and then they'd offer a joint note. But apart from that, it was... Uh, who was it that put those together? Was it... Uh, Frankel. Jim Frankel, yes. He packaged them uh, for St. Martin's. Yeah, but basically he was packaging them and he was... Okay, and there was always this sense of we have to have a balance of so much horror and so much fantasy. And sometimes in those anthologies it created a shocking sort of dissonance. I mean, you'd be reading some really sweet story. It could be it could have been a Susanna Clark story about magic in Victorian England and then and then the next story you've got something Ellen shows about kids eating razor blades. Uh, which was an actual story. But then there was always this sense that you can't really separate fantasy from horror. And I guess what I'm asking you is you never felt you had to have okay, we have to have X number of fantasy stories that are clearly fantasy and X number of science fiction stories that are clearly science fiction, and then there's this gray area that you can play around with. 
I do feel that, yes. I do try and make sure that there is a core batch of science fiction, a core batch of fantasy, and then allow for, if you like, a fuzzy set around that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's much easier to find core science fiction these days than it is core fantasy. Isn't that always been the case, though? Maybe so. Maybe I mean, there, there are some publications dedicated to it. I mean, there's, there are a few, like, there's some fantasy and science fiction pub, you know, publish, you know, publishers, publications out there. Um, but not that many. I mean, Beneath uh, Ceaseless Skies is pure fantasy. Uh, FNSF uh-huh. is a mix of, obviously, fantasy and science fiction. Clark's World used to, used to be a blend, but it's almost exclusively science fiction these days. Uh, yeah. there's, there's light speed. It, it, it's a blend, and it is 50-50, but, you know. But even then, the, the stuff, that stuff is not generally what you would most simply identify as being fantasy. It's not generally Fritz Lieberish kind of stuff. It's not Tolkien kind of stuff. It's yep. not that kind of space. It's liminal edge case fantasy. Yeah, and, and that kind of thing, sort of thing we might get in a Mary Rickard story or a Kelly Link story, I suppose. I mean, uh, wonderful okay. work, don't get me wrong. But, well, you know, well, no, well, wonderful work. I mean, but, but the point is, I think this issue goes back before the 60s and 70s. I think the issue probably goes back to... 1939, because when when John W. Campbell wanted to start a sound, wanted to start unknown, to create a venue for fantasy stories from the authors that he liked, yeah. authors like Fritz Light and uh, uh, Eric Frank Russell and so forth, uh, it it didn't succeed. Yeah. Even in in the early 40s, early fa- fantasy in short form, and this is before the Tolkien revolution altogether. Fantasy in short form didn't seem to succeed unless you were a handful of writers like Fritz Leiber. True. I think that's true. And, I mean, look, uh, part of me would like to see that change. I mean, pro- the, the one book that's possibly a bit of an exception to, to this is uh, G- Gardner and George's big book, Rogues, from last year. I mean, that was a, a had a lot of core fantasy in it. But you know, That's true. And there were longer stories which helped. Uh, and I think you'll see some more in different places. Uh, I'll be fascinated to see if, for example... The, the rise of some of the novella lines that are out there in the world lead to more fantasy short fiction because the novella is a pretty good length for them. You know, I I'll think you're quite, right. I'll be quite interested to see that. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. The first, I think people make the argument that the novella is the ideal length for a fantasy, but I've also people, seen people make the argument that it's the ideal length for science fiction. Which means probably it's actually the ideal length for a novelish kind of story. Um, I think that you can invent. World you don't have to. You don't have to explore every corner of that world. Yeah. In the way you do an ecology. And yet, probably, if we sat there and thought for a little while and pulled out a list of classic fantasy stories, you could find fantasy stories that evoke the sense of a full world that are compelling and that aren't novellas. Well, I think one of the questions is: Does a fantasy have to evoke a new world? I mean, no, the no, it doesn't, but, but, but immersive world-building tends to be a characteristic that people refer to when they talk about fantasy. I think that's because of Tolkien, though, isn't it? Because go, you go back before Tolkien, you're looking at fantasies like The Circus of Dr. Lau, which is set in the American Southwest. Well, hang, hang on, hang on. You, so you would say that Robert E. Howard didn't write immersive fantasy? You would say Fritz oh. Leiber with uh, Lankmar didn't write immersive fantasy? Uh, oh, you're talking about creating immersive fantasy at short fiction lengths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think 
I think you're okay. You win this argument. Uh, <laughs> you know, it would be Langmar, well, Langmar, because we've talked about this before. Uh, we, we've talked about how everybody from Michael Swanwick to our friend Garth Nix have uh, to to Terry Pratchett have been influenced by that kind of to. Geez, I keep thinking people China Mieville. Langmar was a construct which I think was originally a convenience for writing short stories, and the more stories and novellas he wrote, the more he had to work out the details of the secondary world. My point is that unlike a lot of modern writers, Leiber wanted to write these stories, and he had to work out the details of um, Lankmar, and I suspect that, I'm, I'm guessing this, I don't know, I'm not a scholar of either Leiber or Howard, I'm guessing that uh, Robert E. Howard's Samaria was probably developed the same way. He wrote a bunch of stories, and the more stories you wrote, the more you had to fill in the details of your world. Yeah, exactly. And so probably if you look back <clears throat> at some of the more successful series of short stories that, you know, that, that, that were written through the 30s and 40s and 50s, they did it, but they did it piece, they did it piece by piece rather than in one large whole. But today you have a whole generation of fantasy readers, writers, who believe that you need to completely build your world out before you start writing anything in it. You need to have all the archaeology. And interestingly enough, you've got a kind of fantasy version of, of what Hal Clement did in science fiction, because Clement's version of science fiction was you work out all the details and the geography and the geology and the atmosphere and the orbital mechanics of your planet, and then you figure out how to put characters in it. And... Look, I think that works for one approach. I just think there are, there's more than one approach. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I just think that the idea of world building as a separate art form, and, and, and you see this discussed on blogs by, by very good writers, uh, as an art form is something that is a post-Tolkien phenomenon. I don't think that Fritz Leiber sat down and thought, I'd better work out all the details of Lankmar before I write anything. He, he wrote stories and then had to fit the details of his world into the stories that he was writing. Do you start with the stories, or do you start with the world? When Asimov created Trantor, was he world-building? I don't think so. I think Trantor occurred to him as a cool idea as one of the planets he wanted to have in, in this universe that he was talking about. Uh, there aren't really many epic adventures set on Trantor. No, well, no, they're not. It's just... It's a worldwide city, which is a it's, it's a device. It was a cool thing. Yeah, I, I would have to sit down and give it a lot more thought, Gary. I think, and and since we are just about on the on, on the, the precipice of our hour, I'm not going to do that though. now. Uh, um, did Gibson sit down and think out all the details of the sprawl before he wrote Neuromancer? I'm confident he didn't. That's kind of the point I'm getting at. And it's, I'm, I'm not condemning anybody who thinks that world building is everything, but um, it's, it's a debate which goes on among writers and which you and I have talked about before on the podcast and which I've been in many luncheon and dinner arguments about. Um, do you start with a story or do you start with the world? Do you start with a character or do you start with I think it depends world? on the story. And it depends on the world. depends on the author. I mean, you know... Uh, I would also wonder whether the concept of world building was actually fundamentally affected by gaming. 
It might have been, and uh, the, the, which goes back to the question of whether gaming was fundamentally affected by Tolkien. Well, I mean, wasn't it might well have been? Wasn't Tolkien? Mm-hmm. Didn't Tolkien start with building the language? Tolkien wanted to invent a language, as I understand it, and I've talked to Tom Shippey, who actually held Tolkien's chair at one point. That he was a linguist, he was fascinated with with, yeah. with creating this elvish language, and. Uh, realized you couldn't create a language without a world to go with it, and then he created this version of uh, really a medieval version of, 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 a, of a lost world, of Middle-earth. Uh, so yeah, uh, he certainly was fascinated with the world before he was fascinated with the story. But keep in mind, the story started out as a children's book. Yes, I know. Well, and, and great stories do start out as children's books. Maybe something to talk about the next time we're here on, yeah. in the Gershwin Room. We should talk about children's book fantasy at some time because you probably know more about it than I do because actually we should talk to Sophie about it again sometime. <laughs> she she is back. still immersed in Garth Nix's books, actually. Look, that's fine. That's excellent. I'd love to know what people are reading at, at Sophie's age and what they're discovering and so forth. Yes. So let's Something think about that time. for a podcast. Okay. Well, have a fine time in the Bay of Bosnia or wherever it is you're going to be slurping Arabia. around. Mariham and uh, is, we isn't that where they all go in the Avengers movies where Thor goes in the Avengers movies maybe that's exactly maybe I'll meet Chris Hemsworth there or something I don't know <laughs> I hope you have a great time in Archipelagon I, I envy you uh, hopefully we'll get to talk and if not we'll podcast after we'll that and I will say that yeah. I'm painfully aware that because of your scheduling and my uh, physical ailments uh, we missed two episodes of the Crude Street podcast, which, when we've been determined to stay on 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 schedule, so I'm determined to see us pick it up, Gary, and get the get those two episodes back out there sometime in the next few months. We'll get back up, absolutely. So until well, then, hope we will again. Well, in, in, in another week or so, we have we have our episode with Kim Stanley Robinson, who's Aurora. Everybody should go out and buy in advance of the episode if they can, um, and if not, then listen to the episode and decide. But Uh, I hope to be able to talk to you from Finland in a week or so. I look forward to it. Until then, we remain now, as always, the Good Street Podcast.